Welcome to the SAMI Health Revolution Podcast. We're dedicated to bringing you inspired and informed content about the health revolution that's happening in the U.S. today. Dr. Bastidas is a general surgeon specializing in gastrointestinal surgery and surgical oncology. His medical experience spans several decades. He attended Brown University and then completed his residency in general surgery at John Hopkins Hospital from 1985 to 1992. He was subsequently an instructor there and completed a clinical fellowship with advanced training in gastrointestinal surgery. In 1993, he moved from the East Coast to the Bay Area. He taught surgery at Stanford University for 10 years, then at Loma Linda University for three years. In 2006, he became the Director of National Surgical Associates, an organization that is dedicated to bringing excellent surgical care to private practice settings. Dr. Bastidas is board certified by the American Board of Surgery, is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, and is the Northern California Chair for the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer. He also serves on many health advisory boards and committees, including the tumor boards at all of San Jose's major hospitals. His current practice is based in Los Gatos, California. He joins us today to discuss some exciting research on the cutting edge of cancer treatment technologies. Welcome to Sammy Health Revolution. My name is Mike Smith and I'll be your host for today. I'm passionate about healthcare because health is one of the most critical aspects of life and I want everyone to enjoy the longest and highest quality life possible. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Augusto Bastidas. Dr. Bastidas, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here today. And thank you so much for joining us on Sammy Health Revolution podcast. Based on your experience and body of work, we can tell that you're a believer in the health revolution. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? I'm a general surgeon by training. And I studied on the East Coast and did all my surgical training at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and have been out on the West Coast now almost three decades. I see patients for general surgical issues but I have had a primary focus in the management of cancer patients, uh, particularly gastrointestinal cancers. And based upon your background that we just heard a little bit about, we understand that you're also involved in kind of experimental cancer treatment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. First, a, a little more about the background of cancer management. Historically, surgery has been a critical component of managing solid tumors. Our patients with solid tumors, obviously, resection of those tumors has been historically the primary treatment. Uh, we've learned that cancer is a much more complex disease process, and our failures from surgery alone are as a result of really late identification of the disease process. And so we've learned over the decades that multimodality therapy is critical in achieving improved results. So in addition to surgery, I talk to my patients about sometimes systemic chemotherapy, sometimes radiation, other therapies that modulate the immune system. And I've had a particular interest in reintroducing hyperthermia as a modality for cancer therapy. 
Thank you for that, and I'd love to get back to whole body hyperthermia treatment shortly, but I'd like to take a step back and talk a little bit about what cancer is and the state of cancer today. Is there hope for curing cancer? Well, that's almost like asking, is there hope for curing death? I think that we have made significant progress in managing cancer. I think that our biggest advances in the future will be in prevention of cancer. The, the actual term cancer is a very broad term, so it's hard to make very specific and narrow conclusions. When I sit down with patients and have so for decades now and try to explain to them what cancer is, I've always talked to them about how on one side you have cells that have mutated from normal cells, and mutations are the errors in duplicating DNA on cell division. And we know that most cancers are related to not one, not two, but an accumulation of many mutations, and that this leads to altered growth of cells. And historically, most people have always thought, well, I have a mutation, my cell starts growing out normally, and it just goes uh, wild in uncontrolled growth. It's a little more complicated than that, but the common theme is altered uh, cell growth. And then on the other side, I always have told patients that when one has the clinical disease of a cancer, it's also a marker that the immune system has failed in controlling those abnormal growths. We have in our immune system cell types that are specifically engineered to identify and destroy abnormal cells. So when a patient ends up with a tumor, it's not only a population of cells that grow abnormally, but it's also the immune system that's not been successful in doing its job in controlling that growth. Until recently, modulating the immune system was something that we have not been very effective at. Immunology is a relatively new science. Even when I was in medical school, we didn't even have a course called immunology. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're still learning a lot. And uh, in the last a couple of years, it's been extremely exciting because for the first time, we're starting to understand how we can uh, modulate that particular area of the immune system. And that leads me to another question, and that's really about investment in the research of cancer. So according to some studies that we've looked at, about $20 billion has been spent um, over the last five years in researching modalities of cancer treatment. Yet we know that it's not really having major impacts on outcomes, and we're still seeing that about 600,000 Americans will die from cancer this year alone. So can you talk to me a little bit about why you think that the proportion of investment that's happening in cancer research is not having the impact that it has on other diseases like HIV, AIDS, for example? Well, as I said, uh, cancer is a very broad uh, disease. It, it's many, many different diseases. Uh, the, um, uh, I don't have uh, numbers at my fingertips. The number you gave to me did sound pretty small. There are many, many organizations that collect and invest into cancer research, not only our government tax dollars, but private donors who many organizations. For example, I sit on a local 
Regional American Cancer Society Board and American Cancer Society collects and invests huge uh, amount of money for research. The result of these research funds has had a significant impact. As I mentioned, part of our problem in managing cancer patients is that we're very much behind the eight ball when we diagnose cancer. Most solid tumors of the GI tract have been present for 5, 10, maybe 15 years before we actually diagnose them so that the outcome uh, for that particular individual is probably already cast by the time we make a diagnosis and our therapies are hence not as effective. The impact on other diseases has also altered the incidence of cancer in, in our society. So, for example, historically, uh, most of us died from cardiovascular heart disease. And as we've learned to control our blood pressure, as we've uh, stopped smoking as much and have learned to manage our lipids, that curve has flattened and dropped, whereas the cancer curve has sort of had a slow, steady increase. And as of just a few years ago, most of us are now going to die from cancer and not from heart disease. The biggest risk for developing cancer is actually age. And so the longer we live, the more likely we are to accumulate the necessary mutations to express a cancer. And I think that's part of why when you look at the statistics, you see that cancer continues to be a major public health Right, something like 70% of all cancers will be um, developed by people who are above the age of 55, I believe. This yes. Is statistic. And just to clarify, um, you, you did make a point. So that $20 billion number is just spent from the National Cancer Institute. So you're probably right. There is a magnitude greater amount of spend, but did want to clarify that. So that brings me to another point of conversation, which is about this idea of whole body hyperthermia which is, of course, a really fascinating technique that's being used right now in the cancer space. And we'd love to get a little bit more of a sense of what that is and how it could potentially benefit patients. And, you know, what are the differences between local, regional versus whole body hypothermia? You know, what are the nuances that patients should be thinking about when choosing to elect this type of treatment? So hyperthermia is, as I present to patients, the fourth major modality of uh, treating cancer patients. First through our surgery and radiation, which are local regional therapies, and then systemic chemotherapy, which is obviously systemic. And the chemotherapy was traditionally cytotoxic chemo, which are the poisons that will interfere with DNA and protein synthesis more directed therapies that are more selective to the specific growth pathway abnormalities is referred to as targeted chemotherapy. And then the most recent category of chemotherapy is what we call immunotherapy. Hyperthermia likewise has subsets as well. You specifically asked about whole body hyperthermia. And in whole body hyperthermia, there are different degrees of that, pardon the pun, <laughs> it, uh, there's uh, the, the deeper hyperthermia, and then there's the, what we refer to as fever-level hyperthermia. Mm -hmm. Now, historically, and I'm talking about for centuries, people have observed that uh, heat can have a beneficial effect against tumors. So you can see ancient cultures try to harness that observation, and you can go back to the Egyptians who used 
on local heat to treat breast cancers. And uh, Hippocrates wrote about progression of, of sarcomas after febrile illnesses. So these are observations that have been evident historically for many, many years. It all culminated to trying to harness that in the mid-1800s when physicians in Europe and in the States started to look at how to induce fevers. Because prior to that, they would see patients, for example, if you had a sarcoma on your arm and you went through a febrile illness, people had observed that sometimes these tumors would then shrink and sometimes actually disappear. That treatment fell out of favor in this country after the 1950s when so-called modern cytotoxic chemotherapy came onto the market. In other countries throughout... What was that? What was the reasoning behind the falling out of favor? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, the way I explain it to my patients is that in a traditional American fashion, the profit margin was probably higher in selling poisons than in harvesting cheap heat to provide treatment. Hmm. But that's the skeptic in me. But I, that's exactly what I tell patients because I don't see any other reason why it would be all of a sudden not FDA approved. The other argument is it hasn't been studied, and that's a fair statement. It's been very difficult to study, and there, and there aren't strong scientific basis for how or why it works. We'll talk about the different uh, mechanisms that we believe are a part of that, but I do believe that, you know, after World War II, when chemotherapy started, the first chemo agents were direct drugs related to mustard gas. You know, they were quite remarkable, and they could cure childhood leukemia, so it was very potent, and that's basically where modern chemotherapy started. The rest of the world continued using hyperthermia, and today, you'll find clinics all throughout the world. One of the big centers would be in Germany that has many, many hypothermia centers. And it, it's very much a standard part of multimodality therapy for uh, cancer patients everywhere else except for the U.S. Our interest in whole body hypothermia arose from using regional hypothermia. We'll go back and talk about the different levels of whole body hypothermia, but regional hypothermia is where you just heat up parts of the body, and that's more established in the U.S. as an adjunct to other local therapies, specifically radiation therapy. But a few decades ago, since we knew that hyperthermia in, in the laboratory would uh, induce tumor cell death at a temperature of 42 degrees, which is just over 107 degrees Fahrenheit. At 42 degrees, you can take a Petri dish full of tumor, heat it up to 42, and you'll get a certain amount of kill. And if you take the same Petri dish and you pour some chemo in there, you'll get a certain kill. But if you combine the two, you'll get synergy, so more than double the kill. And so that was a known laboratory observation, and that served as the basis for developing a process that's referred to as hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy, which was developed by Dr. Sugarbaker in Washington for patients who had these rare, slow-growing, mucinous tumors of the appendix. So about 15 years ago, we started the first IPEC program in Northern California, here in San Jose, 
And we started it as a research protocol, specifically because one of our team members was interested in patients with advanced recurrent ovarian cancer. And at the time, IPEC had not been applied to ovarian cancer patients. So we initiated this program. And then after a few years of, of working on this program, we were presenting data at one of the HIPEC meetings in the 1980s when hyperthermia was brought out of the closet to try to treat AIDS. And the theory was that hyperthermia induced the immune system. So we had these patients who were immunosuppressed. And so people started looking into using that to treat AIDS. After the drug therapy came out for AIDS, then some of these hyperthermia researchers turned back to asking the question, well, maybe we can treat cancer now that we've reestablished how to administer whole body hyperthermia. And uh, this eventually led to some work at the University of Texas in Galveston, where they showed some very promising early effects of using just hyperthermia in patients with advanced lung cancer. So our interest started with learning about these early efforts, and we were able to make contact with that group and reinitiate a whole-body hyperthermia program here in San Jose. So is whole-body hyperthermia appropriate for uh, cancer patients at early or advanced stages of their cancer treatment? When would you say would be most appropriate for um, a patient to engage in that type of treatment? One of the issues with hyperthermia is that we uh, don't have a precise scientific understanding of exactly which are the key aspects of how it impacts cancer patients. So I do believe that one of its primary effects is by stimulating the innate immune system. And if that is the mechanism that's most important, then I would think that it's applicable to any stage of cancer patients. So one of the things that I kind of always had had a sense of is that heating the body above, let's say, 103 degrees could be really dangerous. Let's say you have a cold and your fever shoots up to, you know, 102, 103. Um, That could kind of lead to other issues like seizures or some, some other type of issue. How do you make this type of therapy safe? You know, you're heating the body up to that extreme temperature. It seems to me that it would be, you know, a difficult process uh, on the body. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And so this is where you have to look very carefully at what temperatures you're looking at. Everyone's aware that children will seize with fevers. Everybody always has thought that you should control fevers because of that. And it is a very common uh, bias by physicians that fever may necessarily be bad and you should uh, keep it under 103 or whatever. It turns out, so if, if you look at the temperature curve, obviously if you heat somebody to 44 degrees, you're going to get actual tissue destruction. Mm-hmm. And the temperature at which that starts to occur is at about 43 and a half. And so we're well under that. And so the effects we have on tumor at 42 degrees is not a direct physical uh, destruction of tumor cells, but rather an alteration in biochemistry. Uh, Side effects of whole body hyperthermia are very different uh, depending on how you administer the hyperthermia and what level of hyperthermia you want to achieve. 
In general, whole body hyperthermia is looked at at two levels, what we refer to as fever level hyperthermia, which is about 40 and a half, maybe up to 41 degrees, and then the deeper hyperthermia, which is 42 degrees. Our group has been interested in uh, the deeper hyperthermia of 42. In our system where we do whole body hyperthermia, we actually have been doing it under general anesthesia. Uh, it's been done under extremely heavy uh, sedation, so it requires basically placing the patient to sleep to allow the discomfort of being so hot uh, to be tolerated. And that uh, introduces other types of issues, technical issues of uh, extracorporeal circulation. The concern of heating the brain to 42 degrees has been always prominent, but there's clear data going back to the 1980s when people started doing this, that there's no neurologic toxicity that's measurable. The big lung study that the University of Texas did looked at that extremely carefully. Hundreds and hundreds of experimental pre-human studies have also been done and with no evidence of neurologic deficit. In our patients that we've studied, we've also have not had any neurologic issues. Okay, I'd love to talk a little bit, um, we discussed outcomes um, before. Um, can you give us a sense of how patients are responding to these treatments? So this, in fact, is the primary uh, problem with our Western way of looking at cancer therapies. Hmm. The standard for determining whether a therapy has a significant outcome is, is what we call randomized control studies. And so our system in this country has relied very heavily on that. And consequently, we're very slow in getting new therapies on the market because it's a very laborious process uh, to do that. But any drug that's on the market that's uh, been FDA approved has gone through that process. HIPEC is an example of a therapy that has gotten to the market, is available, and has been viewed as controversial by some because it never really went through that usual process in this country. Nevertheless, proof of principle has now been shown most recently in this country with a prospective randomized study in ovarian cancer where there was efficacy of HIPEC. Prior to that, it was some European studies that were done by trainees of Dr. Sugarbaker that went back to Europe to do those studies. For whole body hyperthermia, we don't have, and nobody that I'm aware of in the world has been able to set up prospective randomized studies. And the reason for that is, is a little complicated. First of all, they're extremely expensive to do. And there are so many variables to try to control. And if you believe that whole body hyperthermia is a immune therapy, you may or may not want to do that in isolation of other therapies. And so as soon as you bring in other therapies and say you want to give a little bit of chemo, maybe some high-dose vitamin C, uh, maybe some high-oxygen therapy, mm-hmm. um, all those, and each one of those is a variable of their own, it, it then becomes extremely difficult to say that that particular population clearly benefited from the hypothermia alone. And so, unfortunately, right now, we do not have prospective randomized studies. The historical studies are actually quite uh, prominent in in their outcomes. 
uh, just looking at the uh, University of Texas study, they took a patient population with advanced lung cancer who should have had extremely short survival times, and one treatment at 42 degrees of systemic hyperthermia quadrupled their expected survival. Wow. And so I think that, to me, that's, that's probably one of the cleanest studies to show a direct effect where the only treatment they gave was hyperthermia. The problem that you have at many of the clinics internationally is that hyperthermia is not used in isolation, and so it's very difficult to interpret outcomes. So as a clinician, how do you advise your patients to consider whole body hypothermia? Because it's not something that most clinicians, I think, would be advising their patients to consider. For someone who's kind of listening to our podcast and you know, maybe kind of considering chemotherapy or other types of therapies out there, how would you say that they should kind of talk to their doctor about it or kind of think about electing it? Well, it's not available in this country, so the overwhelming majority of patients never hear about it from their doctors. Right. Medical oncologists are not really trained in it. Radiation oncologists do use it as a local regional adjunct to radiation, so they may mention it, particularly when they fit their limits of standard radiation therapy doses. I think that you know this discussion that I went over earlier presenting the general principles of management of cancer, I go through that with all my cancer patients. I explain to them the rationale for surgery, potential rationale for chemotherapy, the rationale for radiation, the mechanisms through which they work. And I always mention hypothermia as something that exists, uh, not in this country, so that if they are interested, I can then advise them as to the, the nuances of what, uh, how it might uh, play a role in their particular uh, disease process, and then where they can go for that. Uh, internationally, because unfortunately right now, there are no current open studies for whole body hypothermia in this country. So should a patient who's interested um, be looking for oncologists who have experience with hyperthermic treatment, or should they be asking their oncologists who should have some kind of direct experience with it? What, how would you kind of advise a patient who is interested but doesn't know where to turn well, as I mentioned, um, it's not part of standard Western training, so most uh, medical oncologists don't have experience with whole body hypothermia. There are centers that are often labeled alternative therapy centers, and those tend to be the physicians and practitioners that are most informed of, about this modality. And so when I bring it up to patients, I give them resources for where they can get that. Unfortunately, it's not really discussed by most uh, Western-trained physicians because it's not been practiced in this country for over a century. And so the final question I want to ask is, where do you see cancer going in the next 10 to 20 years? What's kind of your outlook on treatment, on the disease itself? Any insights? So what's giving us the biggest advances in understanding cancer is the molecular genetics, the computer power that's allowing us to look at DNA very carefully. We now know it's not all in the DNA. We need to study the RNA. We need to study the product of that, which is proteins, obviously. And I think that very soon we're going to reclassify all that we know about cancer. So right now, patients come to me with a diagnosis of, let's say, cancer of the pancreas, 
I think in the future, it's not going to be labeled that. It's going to be labeled uh, you have a cancer that has a family of mutations known as Z, Y, or Q. And uh, it may be that that particular tumor started in the pancreas, but it's very similar to a, to a tumor that started in the colon with the same family of mutations. And that then uh, will direct our therapies to those specific cellular pathways that are affected by those mutations. Unfortunately, that's not likely to happen in my lifetime, but I do think that that is, is the future. The other more exciting thing that is changing day to day in front of us is our ability to manipulate the immune system. And since we know that when tumor cells mutate, they shed and circulate in the body as a relatively early event. And so our immune system is critical in controlling that phenomenon. And so I think that the old saying of eating and living well, staying healthy, is probably what optimizes your immune system and probably the best we can do uh, in the future is learning how to optimize our immune system, you know, limit what we do know that can induce mutations. For most patients, unfortunately, there are no specific risk factors that predispose them to cancer. These are random events, as best we can tell, but maybe with further progress in understanding the molecular genetics, we'll learn a little more. Well, Dr. Basitas, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this production of SAMI Health Revolution hosted by SAMI Aid. Our mission is to disrupt the healthcare establishment by empowering patients and people just like you. If you've enjoyed this episode, we're asking you to tell just two people you know about SAMI Aid. Share this podcast with them, or better yet, ask them to visit us online at samiaid.com or call us at 1 844 that's one eight four four S A M I A I D. You can also email us at info at samia.com or send us a message on Facebook. What's your health story? We'd love to hear it. Until next time, stay in great health.